I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. I'm going to read to you from verse 37, and we'll read to the end of that chapter. But before we uh, read the passage of Scripture, I just want to lay out just very briefly the context, because otherwise it will make no sense. Um, We have been working through the story of the, the life of Joseph. And at this particular point in his life, after being sold into slavery by his brothers, then finding himself in prison, 13 years have passed, and eventually Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, calls upon this prisoner who is known for his ability to interpret dreams and calls him into his presence and tells him these two dreams that he's had. And Joseph explains the meaning of the dreams, the dreams being that there will be seven years of famine um, that follow seven years of fruit, and that therefore there ought to be a, an effort to collect as much harvest as possible centrally by the government over the seven years to come so they will be provided for, for the famine which would follow after. And Joseph lays all this all out before Pharaoh and gives testimony to what the living God is going to do, and Pharaoh listens to him carefully. And this is what, how he responds. It says from verse 37, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And as he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities, he put in, in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, Two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine all, in all lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to to Joseph to buy grain. 
because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, I want to ask you as I open, why, why do you think it is that this particular story, the story of Joseph, has been so powerful and resonant with people for, um, for all, all through the centuries, really, and has even gripped the imagination of people who don't believe in God, and you know, they go to see the musicals and so on. And I don't think it's, it's not be, particularly because the circumstances of his life are ones that you and I would necessarily identify with. Um, he, he goes through a very unique journey into slavery, into prison, and then becoming prime minister. And I wouldn't want to rule any of that out. It's not impossible, but it's highly unlikely that any of you will face any of those particular experiences. But what does resonate with us, I think, are two, two aspects to his story. The first is that we find in Joseph a man whose suffering begins to make sense. And that speaks to us because whenever you go through dark seasons in your life and things that you cannot explain, things that that really agonize, um, cause you to experience agony on the inside, one of the things you want to know in that moment is, does any of this matter? Is there hope at the end of this? Is God in it? And so it deals with that aspect of suffering in the life of the believer, but it also deals with this element of obscurity and hiddenness. I think one of the things that, that captivates us about Joseph is the fact that it just all feels so unbelievable that he could have been so hidden in slavery, in prison, in the darkest part of the nation, and then pulled out of obscurity into a place of unbelievable significance and power and authority. And when you feel that your life is hidden, when you're not sure what God is doing, when you don't know whether he has a plan for you, the life of Joseph speaks about this sovereignty and the authority of God that he cares about us. In other words, if I can sum it all up, it really is captured by that belief, that confidence. God has a plan. God is in control. God is sovereign. That's why I've been saying to you that I really don't think that the story of Joseph is so much about Joseph. It's really about the living God. Now, this is why when we come to this particular moment in the story, we are reaching a a crux where all the years of pain, the 13 years that have led to this particular moment begin to make sense. So far, he's experienced this relentless darkness and suffering from being 17 year, years of age. For some of you, that's not so far from the age you are now. For me, it's more than half a lifetime away. But 17 years of age, all through the prime years of his life. You think how important your 20s are as a season in your life. All through that time of his life when he's growing into manhood, he's growing into his sense of who he is, he was being punished and pummeled and beaten and pushed down into a dark, dark place. Not only in terms of his circumstances, but no doubt in terms of his own mind. All those years seemingly robbed and taken away from him. And now this change takes place in his life. And Joseph is reflecting on this. I don't know if you noticed these verses. Some years after Pharaoh's decision, after he's been married for a little while and he's had these two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, he reflects on it and he says, he names the one Manasseh because he says, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name Manasseh. Um, contains this idea of forgetting. 
And then the second one he names Ephraim or Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He looks back and says, all this suffering meant something. And I can lay it to rest. I can be at peace. At peace. There's a kind of closure on that season of my life. And now I look, I'm looking around and I'm seeing something of the intention and the plan and the favor of God on me in this new place. I think for Joseph, it was like he'd reached a summit in his life. You know that experience, if ever you've been walking and you've attempted some great summit like Skidor in, in the Lake District and you seem to be walking endlessly for hours until you reach the peak. And at that point, all of the pain and the kind of questions about why you were doing this, what was the point, why this misery, all of that clears away and you begin to look around, you survey the scenery and you think, this is why. You look back on the path that you've trodden. You think, well, it wasn't so bad because now look at what I can see. And I think something of that is happening in Joseph's life in this season of life as he begins to enter into what God had been preparing him for. And I I believe it is my conviction that Christians can experience a moment like this at many times in life. You might experience something like this at the moment when you first decide to follow Jesus. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're weighing that. Many of you remember the day that you said, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus. I want to be, believe in him. And like Joseph, you think, well, all that happened before that, God has made me forget. It's all been healed. All the mistakes I made, all the terrible things that I did, all the things that also happened to me, all the pain of that I've forgotten. And then you begin to experience something of the favor. You say, God has made me fruitful. He's given me friends I didn't otherwise have, a sense of family with God's people. He's given me a sense of sonship belonging to him. He's put me in a good place. That's what it feels like when you first begin become a follower of Jesus. But you can experience something like this moment numerous times in the Christian life. You go through a dark season, a dark night of the soul. And part of the the dawning light that shines on those dark nights is this realization what God was doing. Where he's now put me and why he's put me here. Why I experienced all of this. Why I went through this heartbreak or this pain or this suffering or this loss. And what it's now put in me. How God has prepared me for this particular moment. I think that death will feel something like this for us. The moment we die, it'll be as though All the pain of this life will be erased in a moment. To be in God's presence will be to experience that relief, that exaltation, that sense that everything that was bad in this life has been wiped away. As the Bible says, that he'll wipe away every tear. What Joseph is therefore experiencing at this particular juncture in his life is this realization. God was in it. God had a plan. And friend, I want us to think about that from the perspective of what it is that God is accomplishing in you and me through the experiences that we go through in life where you may have asked the kinds of questions that Joseph asked. What is it that God intends to to shape and to form in you as a child of God. And what is it all for? 
What is he doing? And I want to show you a few things that seem to me to be quite evident from this moment, this, this particular moment that we arrive of in the life of Joseph. The first is this, that God's desire is to make you prepared. God is in the business of formation. The moment you become a follower of Jesus to become a disciple, by definition, you are being formed and shaped and prepared and changed and transformed. That is the Christian life, a life of preparation. And so for Joseph, this becomes evident in the affirmation that Pharaoh says over him. He's just explained the dreams and then interpreted to Pharaoh what needs to be done. Did you notice how Pharaoh seems to just be able to see the quality in Joseph. In verse 39, he says, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then he said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Here we see a man who is ready. But what has happened prior to this moment is not insignificant. He's been through suffering. He's been through pain and he's been through delay. He's had to wait all these years, 13 years, for there to be anything like hope returning to his life. Now, I think that this is a hard truth for us to accept, especially in our day and age. I think it's hard for for humans to accept at any point in all of history. But I think the, there are a few reasons why we would find this particularly difficult to accept today in our day and age. Reasons that seem to go against this idea that God would expose you to suffering and delay and pain and hard um, labor and transformation that would take potentially years in your life. Let me give you a few reasons why I think we reject this. One is because we are immersed in a culture of immediacy, We're surrounded by the expectation that the things we want in life, we should be able to have immediately. One of the great hardships for me in lockdown was that Royal Mail wasn't working properly. My deliveries were not coming on time. The books that normally arrive on queue through my letterbox, you know, what suffering I went through that these things were not arriving on time. We're so impatient. We're so used to things happening instantly. We think that we can become successful overnight. We think we've seen in the dot-com era, haven't we, companies become bigger in a matter of two or three years than some of these great multinationals that existed for over 100 or 200 years. And we think this is our expectation. We want to get wealthy quickly, so we buy, we buy all these cryptocurrencies and hope that we're going to become millionaires overnight with the hundred quid that we put in. This is the, the culture, the air we breathe, the thing that we expect in life, isn't it? That we, There's this, this sense of immediacy, that everything that you want in life should come to you quickly. We also, I think, a slightly more dark element of our culture is that we have come into a, a kind of a Western way of thinking that has been described by some as expressive individualism. This is the view that the meaning of life is not to be found out there, but is to be found inside of you and through self-actualization, the expression of who your authentic self. This is a message that we're receiving everywhere, all the time, drip feed, being drip-fed to us constantly. The meaning of life is to self-actualize, to explore who you really are and display that to the world. So the notion that you have to change, 
or that you must endure pain in order to change is an abomination in our day and age. No, no, you don't need to change at all. You just need to reveal yourself. It's the idea, right? You need to just step out and show the world. Be brave. Show who you really are. That's the message that we're receiving constantly, what we praise one another for. This immediacy, this expressive individualism. I love that, that, that phrase as a way of capturing the, the tenor of the culture that we're living in. And the third thing here is that we are, we are saturated in, relatively speaking, so much wealth and comfort. I know that many of you can look back on pain in your life and loss in your life. But I'm speaking relatively here. That never in the history of the world has a generation been raised with less suffering and more comfort. The question is, has that done us good? What has that created within us? Because my contention is that when you put all these elements together, what it forms in us are people who have instincts towards entitlement, towards a a kind of self-obsession, and also then to being soft and unwilling to endure pain and challenge. And of course, the Bible contradicts all of these instincts within us, not least in the story of Joseph, but everywhere in Scripture, all of these things are, are contradicted. You think about how the Bible moves head-on against the culture of immediacy. God is patient. If he were not patient, you'd be dead. But his patience can be frustrating to us. That's why in the New Testament we have to be reminded with, that with God, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years are as a day. He doesn't measure things the way we measure them. Whenever I'm frustrated that the places I want to go or the things I want to accomplish are not happening quicker. I just have to look at the pages of the Bible and look at a man like Moses. He was 40 years old. Did you know that? He was 40 years old when, as a prince of Egypt, he fled into the wilderness. He then spent another 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness. These are not timescales I'm particularly used to. He was 80 before God spoke to him in the burning bush. Then it was another 40 years until he got to see the land of Canaan. And he died before he even got to go in. It's a tragic end to 120 years of waiting. And that story is just repeated time and time and time and time again throughout Scripture. God is not on the same timescales that you and I are on. This notion of immediacy, that everything has to happen now, it has to happen here, right now, it's complete nonsense. The Bible's more interested in the slow growth of redwoods and sequoias than it's interested in the rapid growth of grass. God is about forming robust people who are ready to, to be useful to him. So also, the Bible directly moves against this culture of expressive individualism. What is the call of Scripture? The call of Scripture is not reveal yourself. The call of Scripture is die. Be transformed into the image of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your desires do not define you or your identity. Christ defines you. And against this notion of ease and comfort, we have the very sobering truth of Scripture, which is that God himself afflicts his children with pain for the greater purpose 
of formation. Because he loves you. He loves you. Now, I think you'll agree with me that you can see the necessity of these things in the life of this man, Joseph. When God began to take hold of him at age 17 and the events of his life began to rush out of control, we discovered him, didn't we, as an arrogant young man. If there's one thing you know about pride and arrogance in the Bible, it says God, God, God lowers the proud. God could not have used him if he'd remained so arrogant, so self-assured, so certain of his specialness. God had to deal with his pride. And then when you encounter him in that moment of testing with Potiphar's wife, that woman who says, come and sleep with me. You see there the opportunity for Joseph to forge a life of holiness before the gaze of a living God who he fears. So that much later in life, now when he's got everything offered to him on a platter, money, sex, and power, his character is formed so that he won't be corrupted by these things. He couldn't have entered straight into what God had prepared for him. One of the great tragedies that has been breaking my heart repeatedly throughout the course of this last year to 18 months has been the story after story of Christian ministers, men that I have admired, whose lives have been entangled in things that they should never have been entangled in, whose ministries have now been destroyed. And many of them started life in ministry far too young. God have mercy on us. Prepare us before you do anything with us, Lord. You think about how God had to expose him to hardship. This was a boy who'd been raised in the kitchen with his mother while his brothers were out shepherding and favored, favoritized by his father with everything on a plate. He was soft. But the 13 years of hardship forged a man who was ready to take on responsibility and leadership. Nothing was wasted, is what I'm trying to say to you. Everything was about God preparing him. Now, you ask, what is the result of all this in his life? And I think it's quite obvious, isn't it? He emerges as someone now ready for the greatest responsibility of his life. His standout quality, the one that Pharaoh puts his finger on, is that he is wise and discerning. That's something I think that's greatly undervalued in our day and age, but which the, value, the Bible treasures as a great possession. Seek wisdom, the Proverbs tell us, above everything else in life. Seek wisdom. Seek to grow in wisdom. And I want to say, let me sum up what I've been trying to say to you in a statement here. I think it's possible to suffer without becoming wise and growing into the person that you're called to be. But I do not think it's possible to become wise and to become all that God wants you to be without suffering. In other words, you can experience hardship and pain and suffering in life and react in entirely the wrong way. I've seen Christians angry, sulking, walk away from God. And you think all that exposure to pain that they have endured has produced the exact wrong result in their life. It's possible to go through these things and not grow. But it is not possible to grow into all that God wants you to be without being exposed to these things. The New Testament describes this as the fiery trial through which your faith is tested, revealed to be pure. All the dross is burned away from you. 
Do you see this in your own experience? Are you being prepared? Maybe you're in a hurry. I think the word to you today is slow down. Understand that God wants to go deep, dig deep foundations in you. Are you experiencing suffering and setback? I think the question that a Christian should ask in that moment is, Lord, how do you want me to change? God, what do you want to form within me? Are you striving in this to grow in the wisdom that comes from God? Joseph was acclaimed for his wisdom. Let me read you these verses from Proverbs 2. It says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. What he's describing here is a young person whose whole life is bent on this pursuit. I want to grow in the wisdom that comes from God. When you see people broken down at the roadside, as it were, or wandering off from God, there are people who, they are people who have given up on that quest and taken the fool's route instead. But Joseph, through all the years of pummeling and hardship and beatings that he went through, was in pursuit of wisdom. God formed it within him and made him useful to himself. God wants to make you prepared. Now, I want to show you a second thing here, which I think is related to this, because it's kind of a consequence of that. That in God preparing you, what he wants to do is to prepare you for leadership. And this is what we see being revealed in the life of Joseph. I'll just read you a couple of verses by way of reminder. How Pharaoh then said to Joseph, you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to him, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. I want, in drawing out this, this element of leadership, I want to use this term leadership in the broadest possible sense, because I think we can easily get a bit confused by what we're talking about here. For Joseph, evidently, the leadership that was conferred upon him was something like absolute authority. And just by the way, as an aside, isn't this an interesting phenomenon that mirrors our recent experience? That so often when nations go through crisis, power is, is ceded from the populace and given to those in control so that they can hopefully fix it. I could not have imagined two years ago being told whether I was allowed to leave my own home or not. But that's the kind of, we're talking about something like that going on in the experience of Egypt at the time, where all this power was being delivered and concentrated in this one man, this man Joseph, who, thank God, was ready for it, quite unlike so many rulers in our day and age. We see it centering on him, and so Pharaoh gives him a signet ring that confers authority to make laws and, 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 and make decisions. He garbs him in a beautiful robe. Remember, he was stripped of his robe when his brother sold him into slavery. Now, everything that was broken is being healed. And he gives him a platform, a kind of a position of affirmation. He says, ride in this chariot. And everyone, and those who ride in front of you will shout, bow the knee. I don't think this is likely to be your experience. Let me just, I, just, I don't want to disappoint you, but I just want to lay that out to you right now. Let's just set our expectations at the right level here, shall we? Um, but for you, look, for each one of you, it will look different depending on what God intends and plans for your life. 
The Bible, in describing to us leadership, shows us that this can be in very small sphere all the way through to the greater spheres. And God's in sovereign control of what he does with your life. The first, first, most primary, fundamental level of leadership in the life of the Christian is learning to lead yourself. Self-mastery, self-control, a fruit of the Holy Spirit, we're told in the New Testament. That whereas formerly you were following the passions of your flesh, the New Testament says, you were a slave to your own desires. The first element of leadership that begins to take place when Christ gets hold of your life is learning to, to rule your own life under the authority of Jesus. But then there can be expanding spheres of leadership that God releases you into. Think to, to the men here. The Bible is clear that God calls you to lead in your household, within your marriage and over your children. You think about how God could take any of you, men and women, bring, put you into positions of influence and leadership in the workplace or in business or in government. Perhaps in church. It's really up to him, isn't it? But God puts us where he wants us. In small places or great places, it doesn't really matter. And also that the authority that he confers upon us can be informal or formal. It can be kind of soft power or hard power. In Joseph's life, clearly this was an institutional power and authority that God conferred upon him. And this can happen to individuals. I've known Christians be put in all kinds of unexpected places in life because God wanted them there. But sometimes it's more through the kind of the person that God forms in you that just seems to influence everyone around you. I don't think there's any point in people whining about desiring leadership. Just, just be a better man or woman, a more Christ-obsessed person, and you will find that others want to be like you. You become an influencer, not in the social media sense of the word. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Let's reclaim that word, shall we? For the redemptive power of God. <laughs> Shut down your social media accounts. Shun all of that. Pursue Christ and people will want to follow you. That's how it works. Now, in just defining what I'm speaking about here, I think I need to just be clear what I don't mean and what I do mean. Because I think so much of the leadership, when we think about leadership, our minds are often very confused. There's a lot of interference the enemy has been running on this notion, this idea even to the point where I think in our day and age, generally authority is viewed to be something evil and wicked. It's not. It's a God-given gift. But let me just show you what I don't mean. In the Bible, here's three things that are not important. The first is recognition and visibility. Not important. Joseph was willing to lead in the household of Potiphar and in the prison. Please don't pursue recognition and visibility. Another thing that doesn't matter in the Bible is importance in worldly terms of the thing that you're doing. I don't think that we have an accurate assessment of what really matters in life. It's one reason why we so devalue motherhood. Imagine that it's somehow of less importance. Because we don't have an accurate assessment of things, do we? If only scripture could form and shape our imagination and vision of what matters to God in every sphere of life. Can I just show you, by the way, why that's true in Joseph's life? We think that, you think on the surface reading that he's important because he's the prime minister of Egypt. That's actually not true. He's important because he's going to be the savior of his own people, his brothers, the Hebrews. 
Even that is obscured up to this point. That's the real plan of God. Being prime minister was incidental to the plan of God. He's going to save his brothers from starvation. You cannot know what the place, whether the place that God has put you, what it is accomplishing in his plans and purposes in an eternal sense by measuring it by worldly standards. You cannot, friends. That's why I mentioned motherhood. Because I think, you know, when you think about the great men of God through history who preached the gospel, and I think particularly of John Wesley and Charles Wesley, do you know that behind there was the mother, Susanna Wesley, who prayed over them every day? She had so many children, she, the only way she could find some quiet in her life was by putting a tea towel over her head and then praying in a corner with a tea towel over her head. There would be no John and Charles Wesley whose ministries changed the world through the establishment of Methodism if it were not for Susanna Wesley. And I suspect that she'll have a greater reward than they did. Praise God. We, let's, not, let's not apply our stupid ways of measuring things according to worldly terms. And that's just one example. We could multiply examples. Don't pursue earthly rewards is another thing. Joseph was remunerated well, admittedly. I don't think any of that really mattered in the grand scheme of things. He was willing to serve God in obscurity in the prison, wasn't he? What does matter then to God is this. God is looking, first of all, for people who are faithful. Faithfulness means a consistency in your life. That you will walk God's way and not veer off course. And do what he set you to do without giving up. That's faithfulness, biblically speaking. It's clinging to the promises of God. Sometimes when everything around you looks like it's broken and falling apart. Faithfulness is plodding with Jesus. And that's the kind of man that Joseph had become in his hiddenness. Another thing, biblical element of leadership is trust. The belief that God alone puts us where he wants us under his sovereign plans and purposes. Joseph did not design his own career. How could he? God promoted him. The Psalms say that promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west, but from the Lord. It's a conviction, I believe, in the deepest part of my gut that Christians need to trust God with their steps. And another element here is service. Realizing that wherever God puts you, you are there to serve him. When you grasp that, it will transform your attitude to the things that God has put on your plate Your friendships, your service of the church, parenting, marriage, work, singleness, everything that God has laid in front of us will become transformed when you say, everything that I'm called to do is done for the glory of God. I'm serving him with the things in front of me. Joseph's story seems to me underlines this vision of the authority of God. He's in control of your steps. We focus on serving him. Let me sum it up like this. I think that as Christians, you should not concern yourself with the where, the what, or the how, but only with the who. With the certainty that you're living for Jesus. This brings me to my last point. A kind of consequence of these former points. God wants to prepare you. He prepares you for leadership. In order that, number three, you would be fruitful in your life. This is what dawned upon Joseph as he begins to exercise his leadership as the prime minister of the nation. He's some years later, he has a wife, he has two sons, and his 
His command is being obeyed and things are happening. And as he names his sons, you remember that how he named the second son Ephraim? He says, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This is what I think each of us desires for our lives deep down. It's why we agonize. It's why we experience angst. It's why people go through midlife crises. Because ultimately we want to have a sense that the life we live means something, that there's purpose, that there's legacy perhaps, that there's impact. Now, I just want to share personally with you, if you'll forgive me for a moment. When my, as you know, my dad died a fortnight ago, and it's my first opportunity to preach since that happened. I just want to mention it again. When in, towards the end of my dad's ministry, he was a preacher also, we began to see his powers diminishing. His mind was not what it was, and it's affecting his preaching. It was affecting his decision-making, all kinds of things. We weren't quite sure what was happening. We just knew he wasn't himself. He was around 60, 61 at the time. And by the time he reached 62, he went to the doctors, got checked out, and he received his diagnosis that he had early-onset Alzheimer's. I was tasked with the job of sorting through his library. I know most of you didn't know my dad back then. If you'd walked into his study, you would have been silenced in shock and awe by the number of books that he owned. He was a compulsive reader and collector of books. He had fifteen to 20,000 in his personal library. And they were all boxed up, and I was tasked with the job of sorting through them. And I can tell you this. The two or three weeks that I went through those books were the worst weeks of my life. Because that was when I began to grieve. I was grieving all that he was as it was sort of embodied in his library and all his passions and interests was fading away. And I cried so many tears over those weeks and was in a very dark place as I grieved what was being lost, essentially. But with that was the pain of questioning, God, what... Why? You know, why he'd had such an impact on my life, I knew that, but I was thinking, this seems wrong, this seems so premature. I know if ever you've lost a loved one, surely you've, you've asked that question. And it's, it's troubled me, troubled my spirit ever since. Two weeks ago when I wrote a tribute to my dad and it was circulated widely and many people read it and a lot, there was an invitation, please email us as a family if there's some story that you want to share of the impact that dad had upon your life. And I had scores of emails, thousands of words were sent in. So much so that I have not plucked at the coast to reply to any of them yet. There's a job waiting for me. But the experience that that had, the, the, the impact that that had on me, and I think I speak for my family also, was a sense of healing that we began to be able to see things from a heavenly or eternal perspective. You cannot know what your life has accomplished. We had the privilege of people telling us, very often people don't say anything. You cannot know. Only eternity will reveal these things. I heard from people from decades ago whose lives were set on a completely different trajectory because they heard Dad tell them the gospel. And it's put a renewed vigor in me. I want to be like that. You know? Who cares what it looks like on the surface? It doesn't matter. Focus on Jesus. Seek to be faithful. 
Trust the rest to him. But it has answered something of the question in me for the desire for fruitfulness in his life, the legacy and the impact of his life. And friend, isn't that something that you resonate with for yourself? I want to live a life that has meaning, that has purpose, and that that purpose should last. Don't you desire it? Joseph had reached a moment where he began to realize what God was doing. And he had to endure unbelievable pain to get to this point. That may be yet be in front of you, friend. And so he came to this point of fruitfulness. Some of that was personal. The wife, the kids, the sense of arrival, I suppose. The Bible affirms these things and, and, and many others like them. and says that God gives you good gifts. None of them are entitlement, but God gives us good gifts in our lives. But more important than that was the spiritual impact. That he was part of the lineage of faith. That his life resonates to this day because he preserved the people of God by his actions as the savior at that time. And friend, when I compare these two things, that kind of personal fruitfulness the wealth, the family, all the things that he enjoyed, and the spiritual impact of his life. Let me just tell you a couple of truths. One is this. Both of these things are good. The Bible affirms them both, but only one is necessary. And that is the spiritual fruit that God wants to to accomplish in and through your life. And I say that because Jesus very clearly affirmed this point shortly before he was crucified. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. He says, I called you to be a follower of me so that your life would make a difference for the kingdom. And he states it negatively as well. He says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. In other words, one of the evidences that you're truly a follower of Jesus is that your life is clothed with the fragrance of Christ and has an impact everywhere you go. This is what we crave. Sometimes as well, I should add this, sometimes the personal fruitfulness, the sense of being well healed that Joseph had arrived, some of that has to be sacrificed for the greater purpose of spiritual fruit. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's talking about his own life of devotion to the Father that meant that he was homeless, jobless, in terms of paid job. But he had a greater goal in mind. He sacrificed all of that for the sake of accomplishing God's will. And he says to us as his children, take up your cross and follow me. Doesn't he say it also like this, how beautiful this promise is? In Matthew chapter 19, when he's describing the sacrifices that sometimes are necessary for the sake of obedience, for the sake of pursuing him, he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. When you do all that, when you give up so many of the things you wanted in life, For the sake of Christ, he says, you'll receive multiples of that. Perhaps in this life, but certainly in eternity. 
Joseph tasted something of this. The uncomfortable truth, friend, is this, though. If you desire a fruitful life, you have to die. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That was the story of Joseph's life. He had all these dreams as a jumped-up 17-year-old, and they all had to die. He had to be buried. He had to be buried in the darkest prison so that God could resurrect him and use him. This is true of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? What was it that he desired? The nations. He desired to call men and women to himself to be part of his family and to save you from your sin. But in order to accomplish that, he had to die. He had to go to the cross. He had to bear the penalty for your sin in his body on that wooden tree so that he could be raised to life and be the firstborn from among the dead and raise you up with him. And friend, there's a sense in which the Christian life mirrors that calling. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, come and die. I don't think this has ever been put better outside of the Bible than by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. And thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, He bids him, come and die. It may be the case that you have been bucking against this calling. You think you're a follower of Jesus, but you've been unwilling to die. You've been unwilling to die to your desires, to your ambitions, to your lusts, to your pride, to your will. God has a way of dealing with us when we're resistant to this call. The invitation to believe in Christ is to be united with him in his death, to experience death in yourself so that the life you live in the flesh is the life of Christ. Do you need to die? This is the gospel. Christ died to gain you. Now you died to belong to him. I want to lead us in a prayer of response. Joel's going to come and help us respond also in song and in worship. And we're going to take communion now also. We're going to take the bread and the wine, consume the body and the blood of Christ, and so partake in his death on our behalf. And friend, I want to encourage you 
Don't eat the bread, don't drink the wine, unless there is a yes in your spirit. He died for me and I want to die to myself in order to live for him. Anything less than that is hypocrisy. But as we eat and as we drink, let this moment be a moment of sweet confession and repentance. A moment when we can come to him again and say, Lord, be master and ruler of my whole existence. Where I have complained, desired, run counter to your will, crucify me so that I can live for you. Let's bow our heads. Father, we want to acknowledge as we look at the life of Joseph the great power and sovereign authority of you, the living God. And confess that from our small, myopic perspective, we cannot possibly understand the grander purposes and your intentions for us. Yet so often we hold our fist up in frustration or defiance as though we know better than you. Forgive us, Lord. Teach us what it is to renounce ourselves so that we can possess Christ. Die to ourselves so that we can belong to you. Surrender and submit to your sovereign hand so that we can be used by you. And lead us in your plans and purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.